Welcome listeners. This is artistic director Nathaniel Quinn. Uh, today I have with me joining us the physics for poet playwright Katie Carlson. How are you today? Very well, thank you. Uh, first and foremost, I want to thank you for such a beautiful piece of art. Um, I know in the rehearsal process we have praised you back and forth, we being myself and the cast and, and our dialect coach. Um, but it's so wonderful and lovely to be able to find playwrights who bring characters to life through language so gorgeously as you have. So thank you very right out of the gate. Thank you for that. Wow. Uh, thank you for finding me and taking the time to read the new play exchange pieces that I had up there. What, what, where my passions lie is finding those new plays and helping get them out into the world. Um, but before we dig into the play uh, uh, physics for poets and anything along those lines, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, a little bit of your background, a little bit of your education, how you wound to where you are, and maybe one boring thing about you. <laughs> oh, there are so many boring things. Um, so yeah, I'm a Midwestern gal from way back and I went to the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. This will tell you how very boring I am. When my <laughs> father <laughs> dropped me off on campus, I did not get the lecture about, you know, don't party too much. Don't. My father's advice to me was, you know, they don't expect you to read everything they assign, <laughs> which gets into the really boring part of me. It's so cliche, but like so many writers, I am a super bookworm and way too happy with a stack of books and a blanket for two long periods of time. <laughs> you know, it's fun. I don't, I, I hear what you're saying and I don't register that as myself as boring because that's such a wonderful recharge for so many of us, whether it's in a corporate world or as an educator or as a theater maker, we're constantly on. And so to be able to sit back and enjoy somebody else's world through our imagination is such a wonderful, lovely thing. Yes, I have loved it my whole life and still do and always have book crushes and rant about <laughs> authors. And yeah, like when I go to exhibits or when I go to you know, art exhibits or when I get to actually meet either a visual artist or a wordsmith that I admire, I become this blathering idiot because they're just like <laughs> rock stars to me. So, yeah. Way, way cool. I'm trying to think how many different rock star quality individuals I have met. Um, and most recently it has just been fantastic playwrights. And I'm at the moment very content with that. Nice. <laughs> So in that, in your education and your background, what led you to writing? So this is so nerdy, but <laughs> it never occurred to me that I could write the things that I really loved um, until a teacher gave me a diary as an award for winning a spelling bee. <laughs> <laughs> And then I would write down everything that happened to me. And it was utterly boring. Um, but I always really loved this idea that I could sit somewhere with words that someone else had 
thrown onto paper and I could have this experience that was so beyond the two-dimensional words on the piece of paper. It just always fascinated me. And so I wrote forever, but um, I really, once I got into college, I was an English major. And so I definitely took all the classes I could where I could sort of sneak in some creative writing, but it sort of felt like a dirty pleasure, like you were supposed to be a scholar. <laughs> and, um, and to be quite frank, I do have that one thing in common with Kay. I felt like if this character in the play, mm -hmm. I felt that if anyone told me that I really stunk and I should stop, like just don't write. I wasn't sure I could handle it at 22. It was so essential to me that the thought of really um, being shut down was more than I could handle. So I also sort of skirted actually you know, I never submitted anything to the journals in college or anything sure. like that. It took me a while to finally get up the nerve and go, you know what? This is not going to kill me. And no one can stop me from writing. Like those two realizations <laughs> kind of coming together kept me at it. What, if I may ask, what, what helped you to, quote, get up the nerve? Uh, to to share that work. I think that's something that a lot of young writers, young playwrights are struggling with, maybe. What, what helped you into that freedom of sharing? So I was always hanging around with a lot of artists. I always ended up living with musicians. I always had roommates who were painters, you know, stuff like that. And sure. um, seeing the courage of people in proximity to me, because I came from a very pragmatic family. So it did sort of take a little proximity to people doing things um, that weren't part of my growing up land to believe that that was okay to pursue it, A, and then B, to go, oh, wow, this isn't, this is a human who is very normal in many other ways. <laughs> <laughs> You don't have to be a complete lunatic. Um, and I always know there's a little lunacy in me and all of us, but there was something that always felt prohibitive to me, um, the forbidden fruit in a weird way, sure. because of a very solidly um, hardworking Midwestern life that I'd known forever. Um, so yeah, so that helped being exposed to people who were doing those things. And then really, I had friends give me permission. I literally had a friend who said, when I was working on a piece, and I really wanted to write a play, and it was the first time I'd written a play, I'd written some other things. And this friend said, give yourself permission to write the worst play ever. And Isn't it so lovely to have those people in your life that remind you that you can, you are the only one that can give yourself permission, but sometimes hearing it from an external source, what that does for us. Yes. And that's a voice I carry in my head all the time. Now, I also feel engaging in other art forms in which I have no natural inclination is super liberating. Like I love to draw things to loosen up my writing brain. Mm -hmm. I love to look at art. I love to listen to music. I, all of those other arts, I just feel like they all feed one another. And the courage of other artists and the work they've produced just, yeah, makes me 
want to forge ahead. So you heard it here, all of you young playwrights, new playwrights, give yourself permission to forge ahead, to share, to risk. The worst you're going to hear is no, and that's okay. Yep. It does not kill you. I'm here to attempt. <laughs> <laughs> you might think it does when you're 22, but it does not kill you. So I think that's one of the reasons I was drawn to Blake too, is he was really soundly panned for everything he sure. did in his own time. And I'm so glad he did it. It's finding those influences that allow us permission to take a risk based on the risks that you have seen others take is so wonderful. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, strange question for you. I know you as a playwright um, and that's the microcosm that I approach this from, but how would you write, how would you describe your overall writing style? Where did that come from? I know I understand as an English major, how did you develop the voice that you have now as a as a, a writer, whether it's playwriting or anything else that you're putting pen to paper? That is such a good question. <laughs> I, I honestly think my writing style is influenced by so many things, but honestly, my personal style is sort of a certain level of just showing up and getting ready to catch things that fly at me. Sure. Um, I really have found my whole life that's been the way if I hear something that really sparks something in me, I have to write it down right away. Or I'm notorious for sending myself voice messages. <laughs> um, yeah, but really scary voice messages of just random thought diarrhea. Um, but things that if I know if I don't capture it, the spark will be gone. Sure. So I definitely, one time I went to a painting class, which I've explained sometimes, I just, I love to explore all the arts and I feel sure. like they ignite different parts of the brain. And I did this expressive painting class and you spend three hours just throwing paint at a canvas. And after I finished, I felt like, oh my gosh, I'm not sure I can speak because it was so non-language focused and it was, it felt so refreshing. But then I got in the car, I drove home. And before I even had my coat off, there were all these ideas that were language, that were words that were part of a play flying out of my head. And I literally didn't take my coat off. I just went over and started typing. Well, that's so, amazing. So yeah, I have, I, I am in the sense, you know, I show up for the page because I know one has to be somewhat prepared. But in addition to that preparedness, I'm always caught off guard anyway. So I, I do feel like, yeah, there, there are so many things that are just floating around in the air if I am tuned in and can catch them, it helps. So... <laughs> In the play, Kay has a line about uh, she she finds the the tail end of a poem that she's been working on, and she's like, "I need a pen, I need a pen, I need a pen." It helps to keep one in your hair. It functions as a lightning rod. Is that you bringing coming to life on the page? That is my writing philosophy. <laughs> Have the pen ready. Know how to scribble, and yes. Yes. And I, I do feel like this is really going to sound like strange alchemy, but I think <laughs> there is some sort of 
energy around creativity that if you just pursue the curiosity, mm-hmm. just keep the pen ready, just it's almost like the muses are like, oh, there's somebody who has a minute or could make one. Sure. (laughs) No, (laughs) because you don't always have a minute, but, um, but yeah, it just, it does feel like the more interested I am in other people and things, and the more I let my curiosity just roam kind of at an, in a ready stance, um, I do feel like there are times you just get struck by lightning. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so fun. What a great thought that ideas are like lightning. So if, if your ideas are like lightning, where do you find that you draw inspiration from as you're viewing things? And I understand as an artist, I fully understand that it can come from anywhere, but where do you find yourself turning? Is it more towards visual arts or... Is it in the realm of music or in the realm of film or other writings that you find you draw the most inspiration from? I think I'd have to say I am primarily auditory. Sure. And when things start to come to me, it's typically in language. It's typically in voices. It's sometimes I will just hear I'm a terrible eavesdropper. (laughs) <laughs> and I try really hard not to just eavesdrop on people. Uh, but when I'm in a coffee shop or something like that, I, I so often can't help but hear snippets of conversation. And every now and then I'll just grab a phrase that I would never have thought of phrasing that way or those kinds of things hit me. Um, music, the rhythm of language often strikes me. There's, sure. there's something very inspiring to me about rhythm and pacing and and also just humans interacting with one another I I'm very much an observer too like I I love to be in crowded places where I don't know people mm-hmm. and just sort of get to be a fly on the wall um, it's so interesting to me that we take we we, my significant other and I love to go into places where we're the fly on the wall and people watch. But as soon as you think about if you're, you know, people watching gives you one viewpoint, but to sit in a coffee shop and listen, there's something dirty about the word eavesdropping where we go, oh, I shouldn't be doing this. And I think it's important to recognize if I'm hearing you correctly, the difference between eavesdropping for personal gain or gossip and being able to differentiate that between oh, I love how you said this sentence, or I've never put those words together myself, or the the cadence of your voice is not a way that I would speak those words ever. It's such a wonderful gift to keep in mind. Yeah, and I've often, I cannot tell you the number of drive-through folks over my, you know, the last probably 10 years that I have said, like, you have an amazing voice. <laughs> when I pull up the but I just, I really am fascinated. I, I sort of loved that this was a podcast, partly because I am so auditory and I just love the idea of our voices coming across the sound waves even before we see one another. And I just find that so interesting. And Glad it's our last, yeah, it's our last sense that goes. At least I've been told that by huh. hospital nurses that 
even when people are leaving the planet, the very last sense that remains is typically hearing. How they know this, I don't know, but hmm. I have heard that. So I that love the sound of the voice. <laughs> so if that's what inspires you as a writer, what inspires you as a playwright? This, this play, Physics for Poets, you've done crafted such a beautiful world between the reality of uh, a graduate studies, uh, a PhD track office and the ethereal of the flashback, the use of a flashback, whether it's to 20 minutes ago when Kay explodes at her students or 200, 300 years ago, back to the times, the life and times of William Blake. Um, how do you find that inspiration and to, to build into that, that world of reality and non-reality at the same time? I that's a big question. <laughs> a big question. I think if I really peel away a lot of the things I get curious about, they're rooted in an obsession with the gray, mm -hmm. but not, not letting it become gray. How can we let stark opposites just sit there next to one another and inform one another without having to become some melting pot of thought. So I know this sounds really nuts, but this- No, it's actually creating these beautiful images in my head because you think about, you know, we think about black and white. And as soon as you said that, I went, well, when you look at gray, it, it, there is such a wide spectrum. Is it on the lighter side of gray, a deeper gray has tones of blues and violets and purples that are built into it or can be built into it. So I just went, gray's not really gray. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yes, gray is not really gray. And white is not really white and black is not really black. And I've just always been so desiring and so, so curious about human connection and how we can make them and maintain them and, and feel a whole range of emotions and not decide that this is this or that. Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of the plays I end up writing wrestle a lot with how we come to think the ways we think how those can be undone, how we can open our minds, how dangerous it is to shut them completely. You know, just a lot of those ideas inspire me and make me really want to just get in the muck. And language can't solve this. <laughs> it doesn't stop me from wanting to wrestle with it. And uh, yeah, I think that's the inspiration I find. Like when people are on opposite, quote, opposite sides of an mm -hmm. issue, even, I'm so fascinated because humans at the core, we are so driven by so many similar things. And I guess I always just really want to understand why we have to go this or that. Mm -hmm. Why we're so quick and us and them. And I always... You live in the we. <laughs> sure. 
So coming back and, and gripping onto this idea that you just said that we think of ways that how you, how the question you asked, paraphrasing, uh, how you're intrigued in how we think the ways that we think and how that can be undone um, is a, a beautiful theme that is woven so wonderfully throughout physics for poets. Um, and, and I know that we discussed this a little bit in, in a rehearsal early on, um, but it, resound, it, it sounds, it connects to me so wonderfully, this idea of the difference between being a, a scholar and actually doing. Um, and, and can you speak a little bit to the themes and where that came from? Uh, and I will, I, will, I will jump in first as to how that connects to me, so I'm not putting you on an uncomfortable spot. Um, because especially more and more, we have so many students and we're telling everybody, you know, you need to get out of high school and go to college and from college go to post grad, you know, graduate school or a PhD track. And we have an abundance of scholars, but nobody who is ready to dive in and get their hands dirty and do. And it's such a wonderful message, I think, that Kay is wrestling with as she goes through this process of I can study, I can study, I can study and stumbles into William Blake and comes out going, he was a doer and he was still famous and is still known. How, how did that come about for you for that theme within this play? Yes. I found when I went to graduate school, I originally went to be an English professor. And as I studied and studied, I still loved the words on the page. I still loved the art form but I was finding myself becoming very distanced from it in other ways that I was suddenly reading the critics about the critics commenting on the work of. Hmm. And what I really wanted to understand was the work and how you make such work and how did it make me feel the way I felt when I read this. And I realized that I was feeling like I was getting into smaller and smaller boxes. And I just wanted to blow open the box and I wasn't quite sure how to do it within my program. Mm -hmm. but I will say, I did love the scholarship. I am still a bookworm. I do right. still think people who came before me and come after and come alongside have really great ideas that I should read about. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I very much appreciate that. And I just didn't want to get stuck there analyzing work and having no idea how to dive in and make something. Mm -hmm. And I had done it when I was a little kid. <laughs> I think we all do. And you know, when I was in fifth grade, our neighbors, I, I basically got signed up for all the summer classes they did. Mm -hmm. And so I got signed up for a drama camp. And I'd never heard of drama, never done anything. And it was revelatory to me that these words on a page could become flesh and walk around and, you know, so <laughs> unbelievably inspiring. Um. And, and I, I loved that, that feeling. And I loved reading it, but I also loved doing it. And to get to a place in my life where I was kind of told, doing it isn't what we're doing anymore. 
right? And I just felt so stymied. So I switched my major <laughs> mid-degree mid and pursued performance studies, which still had a scholarly component, but I also could act and write for the stage and create messy, messy work. <laughs> it's so funny because I find that with a lot of young performers, young directors, young theater makers, that it's, they have this same passion as a youth that you're describing. Um, I grew up, I played, I was allowed to have an imagination and run around. And then we sit in, in school and this is not a, a, a knock at the school systems by any means, but we're given that box to play in and find, trying to find a way in and around and out of that box as we hit our twenties and into our thirties. And as we mature and go, I miss those times when I was allowed to do this and then give yourself again, permission to come back out and play some more. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to jump on this, this, I'm fascinated with this uh, tie into you as a, in drama camp and a drama camp as, as a child, as you have grown, what kind of theater do you like to see? And more importantly, why? So this might sound vague, but it's really the true answer. Sure. Wholehearted, wholehearted theater of all mm-hmm. kinds. Meaning I can feel that the performers, the director, the writer, that everyone involved, the set gang, you know, the crew, everybody, that they're throwing their hearts over the fence. And like I would rather see a really wholehearted high school performance of Les Mis that may be not technically perfect. Sure. And such a hyper polished one that I almost feel like the, the human risk of it isn't showing at all. Um, I just, and, and that's not to say that professional productions can't be like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Hamilton blew my mind and I saw probably a, you know, professional production that had been done so many times, but the risk in what was done in creating a rap musical Absolutely. Uh, and casting it. And it, it just all was even the hundredth thousandth time was still had that edge of throwing, throwing of the heart over the fence. Um, and I love going to new play festivals. I love going to um, fringe festivals mm-hmm. as, as, as uh, Catherine Blake would say in the play, you know, seeing art in the womb of creation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I really do like to see something with a, a raw edge here or there with its humanity showing. Um, yeah, which maybe is what I love about live performance so much because that is always a component of it. Of course. Well, thank you. It's such, it, that passion and what you enjoy seeing shines through in your work itself so beautifully because there is such heavy risk for these, for anybody, you know, with, with physics for poets, for example, to take that stand and, and be able to utilize the dialogue that you have given in a way that is both guarded and 
dangerously open at the same time, you, you kind of have to be able to put your heart out there and into it. So thank you. Um, changing directions a little bit, because I think we've touched on and answered a handful of other questions of mine. You, you talked earlier, spoke earlier a few minutes ago about being very heavily orally influenced. So my question for you is how has this process of podcast as performance influenced you, whether it's positive or negative? Um, I'm, I'm interested in knowing that for myself as, as an artist, because sometimes we need that, whether it's constructive criticism or, or a pat on the back, I'm not looking specifically for either. I should be clear. I really would like to know what you, what your thoughts of this process are. I found it really fascinating. And of course, you know, I love being that fly on the wall, which I mm -hmm. got to do listening into a couple rehearsals and truly just listening, even without the added sound cues and all of that, mm -hmm. it was so telling to me the places where I had overwritten, even by a fraction, are so obvious when one isn't distracted by anything else. Mm -hmm. And when I'm sort of forced in my own imagination to reimagine the play visually in my head with the new voices, with the new Sure. Um, interpretation. And I would say that was the greatest learning experience was, ah, you know what? I bet I could chop two words from that line and <laughs> it's going to read. And, oh, you know, that intro line, that was me clearing my throat. The <laughs> doesn't need it. So there are definitely things I could hear when it was just that with no visual distraction that I found really interesting. Excellent. And, yeah. I'm glad to hear that it is as influential to you as us getting your work is for us. Um, so my next question then comes back around to that rehearsal process. Some playwrights are very, very hands-on um, and want to be in the director's seat as well as the playwright's seat. Um, and you have been wonderfully kind and gracious with us giving, you know, here's a couple of notes or, hey, I think we can do away with this or how about this? You and I had a lovely back and forth about how to build in some of uh, some other moments within the script as it grew. How do you, how do you allow for collaborative distance as a playwright between yourself and your baby, the work itself and you know, me as a director with a cast, oops, you, me as a director with a cast and actors and knowing that we are going to see things different than how you may have imagined it as you penned it. I feel like it takes a village to raise a play. <laughs> <laughs> if it is a baby or a child, if we're going to go with that metaphor, I definitely feel that I alone can only give it so much. I am one mind in a room by myself. And I feel like that collaborative process all along the way, not only helps me refine the script, mm -hmm. but it helps me 
blow out at preconceptions I might have had about the production. And I love it, frankly, when people do that. And I've been so blessed to work with amazing people, including you and the amazing team you put together. Thank you. The actors, oh my word, the dialect coach, sound engineer. I mean, you pulled together really amazing human beings who brought such gifts and fantastic questions. And you, I just, you learn so much from these other skilled craftspeople. And it does feel like a craft to me. And playwright mm-hmm. is W-R-I-G-H-T. Mm-hmm. And, and um, so just to give a couple of examples, I, I have done a couple of plays where I never would have thought of the staging. Like I had a vague notion of what I wanted it to be, mm-hmm. but it wasn't until A, I heard a table reading and I started to realize literal realities of a person cannot change clothes that fast. <laughs> <laughs> you know, those kinds of things, obviously. But also so much can be carried in this action and in this interpretation of the line that I don't need this other line. And so it really, that collaboration, the collaboration that the actor brings, all that they fill in Mm -hmm. with voice presence, their art, and then getting to staging and all that, the tech director and the sound engineer and the, the artistic director and the, and the actual, you know, the, um, the, the builders, what they mm-hmm. create uh, stage design wise, it's so much more than I could have done. They make me look and sound so much better <laughs> for, for real. And it's, it's, to me, that is part of the fascinating project. Like I had an idea for, for example, this play um, Unmarried in America that I wrote I had an idea that I really wanted it all to be in the same setting and it was just gonna be like two spaces and characters in and out. And then this sort of observer who was in a courtroom. So there would be like a courtroom and then like these two kitchens or whatever. Mm-hmm. But really the underlying theme of the play, which I wrote the darn thing, but did I see <laughs> the underlying theme? But the, the real theme was we don't change our minds over court cases. We change our minds over what we see, what we experience, who we know. And so this brilliant director, Wendy Moore, who's worked all across the state of Colorado and beyond, mm-hmm. had the just kind of blew out the walls and went, we're always in the courtroom. People are always watching. And so every actor who exited the stage went to where the jurors sat in what was the courtroom of this play. And so they saw all the scenes. Um, How fascinating. It was amazing. And what it did, it, it just, it carried the message of that show to a level I could not have done with words. Hmm. It was visually there the whole show. I love getting to hear other other artisans that acknowledge and bring to life that it takes everybody to do it and that all of those ideas. Um, I laugh and tease cast members when I'm directing because they, you know, will get those 
uh, will give me, you know, oh, you did so much hard work. You did, you're doing all of this as a director. Guys, my job's the easy one. All I do is push you around the stage. You have the hard work. And it's my flippant way of acknowledging that we are all in this together and all creating and crafting and building that I couldn't do it by myself. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that's so it, wonderful to hear. It's every single piece I've ever done and had the joy to bring to a stage has been affected. And it's not like, you know, anyone rewrote anything and that's where I would bristle, you know, if I yeah. suddenly, had, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's just because, oh, I, what can I say? You know, that, writers are weird (laughs) (laughs) and I'm always I really truly am always open it's not like um my words are precious but if I'm gonna hack them and change them and I want to I want to be on the ground floor of doing that Mm -hmm. Um, absolutely so that's that's more just let me get my hands in that mess because I made it (laughs) (laughs) I kind of need to fix it um But other than that, I really, I'm so grateful for different interpretations people bring for even characters I've written and I cast, you know, I get to be part of the casting process. Um, It's still never what I envisioned. Thank heaven. (laughs) It's so beyond what I could have envisioned. so uh, yeah, so I've just always been so thrilled by that. And and design, I wanted to say also too, mm-hmm. really unsung heroes of the visual world of theater, um, wrote a play called um, Eudora's Box. And one of the main characters is an older guy who is just on the edge of dementia. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I had written the language in such a way that you could feel that and the interactions in such a way you could feel that, but it had never occurred to me to create a set that felt like his mind. And the brilliant scenic designer, <laughs> um, it was kind of a combo of Brad Moore and Lon Winston, uh, but basically decided that let's see this living area like he does. And so there was like a refrigerator in the living room there, you know, it was just, it was off just a little and it didn't look wackadoo. Sure. It, as you were watching, you were noticing he's going to try to find things in places where they aren't because things feel like they're not there to him. Um, sure. Uh, so. Those people that, that can bring organized chaos to life are, are uh, worth their weight in salt for sure. Amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you. Uh, I have one last question. For, well, two last questions for you. One uh, is often my favorite question to ask. I don't think I've run into a spot where I went, oop, that wasn't. Uh, what is your favorite line from Physics for Poets? My favorite line is, it's actually when Brian says, no, you be Blake. hmm And I think that is rooted in this cultural idea that I got. Um, That is, it was being blown apart even when I was growing up amidst it. But this 
cultural feeling that women are muses mm -hmm. and inspirations and helpmates. And even in a lot of plays still, wives and daughters and, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, sort of, they're, they're, they're meant to be these shadow artists, helping the artists sort of thing. Right. Um, and it's not like I ever was told that. It was just sort of the milieu of, of the times. Um, and I think it's a pretty radical thing and lots of women have done it. So it's not like it's any new thing, but it, it was radical to this Midwestern gal. Sure to take the means of production into one's own hands, as <laughs> Wolf would have said, or to, to do the thing that was laid on your heart to do, whatever it is. Sure. However strange it may seem, however you may seem um, like the most boring person on earth who would have nothing to say, i.e. me. Um, <laughs> you know, if this is on your heart, maybe it's on some other weirdo's heart. Mm -hmm. And we can connect and maybe we can understand each other and maybe we can commune. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Wonderful. Oh, that makes my heart so happy to hear that. Thank you. Thank you. Um, the last question I have for you before I let you go, um, do you have anything, any projects or plays or opportunities that you would like to share out uh, as of this time? Uh, or any ways for uh, any listeners to find your work if they're interested, if there's something outside of New Play Exchange, uh, which I'm trying to be a much, much bigger advocate for as I find more plays and more wonderful playwrights. But is there anything as we're opening back up slowly but surely uh, to where we can look out for your works at? Yes, um, thank you for giving me a moment to shamelessly promote a piece I'm working on now. That's uh, not shameless promotion. It is celebration <laughs> of your work. Uh, so I have a piece that I'm working on right now and I'm on about draft two and gathering some actors and would love to find a home for a workshop production and have some options. So I will, I will keep people posted. Um, if you're interested, I do, you know, I am on the new play exchange and um, I'm, a lot of my work, you can actually read the whole script. Mm -hmm. There's actually even a filmed version of a short piece I wrote called A Woman of a Certain Age that you can watch, a piece that I wrote for the Women's Voices Project. Um, but I am really jazzed about the new, I'm always in love with the new piece, right? Right. <laughs> um, but I am really jazzed about it. It looks at the intersection of the birth of American psychology, spiritualism, and feminism. This, this intersection that was all happening at the same time in the 1880s. And it centers on a weekend at the home of William James, but it's all about the women who are gathered there. Um, and there are four women, um, two of whom are being tested to uh, try to sort of, oh, what do I want to say, measure their powers as mediums. Mm -hmm. And so I like to say it's kind of a play about women 
finding power, finding a voice, um, even if they have to levitate the table to be heard. <laughs> um, and does it have a title yet or have I just? Yes. No, thank you for asking. I do have a title now. I've titled it Beyond Reason. And you're for Beyond Reason, you are still looking for a place to, to continue to I, workshop it. Is yes. It, I would is love it available it. on New Play Exchange yet? I have not posted it yet. I'm doing a second reading with a group of actors. And once I've done that, I will be posting it because I would very much love to work uh, with a village <laughs> <laughs> to get this play raised. Um, yeah. So thank you for asking. I will be posting that and I am looking for some uh, partners for workshopping and development. Well, thank you very much for your time today. Um, again, I'm visiting with Physics for Poets playwright Katie Carlson. Uh, and as she just stated, if keep an eye out. If you've enjoyed listening to this series of this play in particular, you can find her on New Play Exchange and keep an eye out for her new works, Beyond Reason. Thank you so much, Katie. Thank you. Great to be Hello. with you. I'm so impressed by your whole team. Thank you so much. Lovely to hear. And I will make sure to share that on with to them. Please do. Okay.